Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Jennifer Rial, who's the Global Director of Strategy at IDEO and an adjunct professor at the Rotman School. She's also the author of Creating Great Choices, A Leader's Guide to Integrative Thinking, which she wrote in conjunction with Roger L. Martin. And it's a pleasure to have Jennifer join us on the deep dive today. How are you? I'm great. It's a pleasure to join you. I've been really looking forward to this conversation for a number of reasons. One, you've obviously spent a lot of time engaged in these topics around strategy, integrative thinking. Clearly, you're an expert in that space. And additionally, because you are in IDEO, which has such an amazing reputation, not just as thought leaders, but as practitioners, you're someone that is putting these ideas into action. So that's a great place to start. So kind of my my first question that I want to get at is when I was going through some of the materials, reading some of the things that you've worked on generally around integrative thinking, and we'll get deeper into the processes, the platform, how it all works. But what immediately jumped out was this idea of, of tension and how tension plays such a central role in making integrative thinking effective. So I want to start there and kind of get your initial thoughts about how and why tension is is such a critical part of the entire process. It's really at the core of what integrative thinking is. So integrative thinking says, if you want to create something new, if you want to innovate, a productive way to do that is to explore the tension between opposing ideas. And it's actually something we struggle with because no one ever trains us to do it, right? We are told that it's better to get along than to disagree, that being disagreeable is a bad thing, right? So conflict tends to be something in organizations that we suppress. And you know that it happens when you're in a meeting and someone says to you, I think we're really saying the same thing here. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm definitely not saying the same thing you're saying, but I understand the signal. The signal is let's move on and let's not delve into the conflict. But what we found is that actually by stepping back, depersonalizing the conflict, it's not a conflict between Phil and Jennifer. It is a tension between perspectives, a tension between ideas. If we're able to do that, then there's something to be learned from each of those models. And it is not in service of choosing one over the other, but rather to use them as raw materials to spur our creativity. So leveraging that tension, living in it, experiencing it, there are things to love about both of these worldviews or these models or these solutions. What are those things? How can we entertain them and then use them to help us be creative? You know, I think it sounds amazing. Right. But I think we we know we can take a cursory glance at not just our business environments, but also our larger societal environments and realize that 
our ideas have become very personalized. You know, how you think about something is often an extension of really yourself, which in a way entrenches us, right? Like I'm completely 100% guilty of that. So I'll throw myself un- clearly under that light. I I have a show. I talk to the people who I think I want to talk to, which means that I think they're cool and interesting and people who I determine to be like assholes, I don't want to talk to, right? <laughs> and I make that determination as in a committee of one. So I think I say all that to say that how do we, in a corporate environment, obviously it's a little different because there should be, should be, quote unquote, sort of a, a larger, not necessarily mission, but a directive that is driving the process, which could maybe help to depersonalize. But maybe looking at that, but then absent that, how do we, is it possible to make some of these ideas not personal? I think I would disagree a little bit with the premise that being in a corporate setting makes it easier to depersonalize ideas. I'm trying to be nice. (laughs) The repeated interactions with people who disagree with us make it more likely that we entrench, right? It is really hard. Yeah, because Tom in accounting is a jerk, right? Exactly, right? And so I think there are two things that we need in order to be able to depersonalize ourselves from our ideas and inquire into them productively. So the first thing we need is metacognition, which sounds like a big and complicated concept, but all it really is, is the ability to think about our thinking. So when something pops into your mind, a firmly held conclusion about the world, this guy from accounting is a jerk, or we should enter this market, or whatever the sort of conclusion you've reached is, it is acknowledging that everything we experience, everything in our life is a model of one sort or another. The world is too complex. We are constantly simplifying. So whatever answer I come to is an incomplete answer. It might be a very good incomplete answer, but it is an incomplete answer. And the only way to figure out uh, what is incomplete is to start by stepping back and asking, how did I get there? So if that is my conclusion, I have in my mind very quickly and without being conscious of it, gone through some data, built some inferences and come to a conclusion. That might be a little bit of data and a big leap, or it might be lots of data and small steps, but we don't spend very much time stepping back to think that through and reflecting on how I got to my answer. So that's one thing we need to be able to do. And that's actually probably the easier of the two, right? So you can train yourself to ask, how did I get there? Where did that come from? How might I have come to a different answer? So that's the metacognition side. The harder side is empathy. So empathy is is one of those words that's become very, very popular and wildly misused. So when I say empathy, it is a very specific definition, which is the ability to understand another person's perspective as they understand it. Not how would I think or feel if I were them, not how can I be nice to this person or agree with this person, but rather I want to understand how Phil came to this answer. Most of the time when we don't understand how someone reached a conclusion, we put them in one of two buckets. That person either wasn't smart enough to come to the right answer 
or they didn't have the right incentives. So those are nice ways of saying they're either stupid or evil. It's really hard to have empathy for someone who you put into one of those two buckets. So instead, we need to get curious. So when someone says something that does not track for you, like, I just don't know how you could come to that conclusion to say, all right, they may see something I don't see. There may be something that I'm missing here. And the only way to understand that is to inquire more deeply into their perspective, to understand how they got to the answer that they got to. What did they see? And I think we've just lost all ability to do that because we spend so much time talking to people who look and sound like us. Our echo chambers mean that we can shut out people with perspectives that are very different, experiences that are very different. And so we don't have that ability to inquire and to be curious. We can just close the link. We can block them, whatever it might be, not invite them to the meeting if we're in an organization or find allies to gang up on them if we have to invite them to the meeting. So it is about stepping back to understand our own thinking and also genuinely seeking to understand other people's because I think that's the only way that we can get past that tendency to just say, my answer is the right answer and to tie that answer to our own identity because that's where we get in trouble when our answers become who we are. I think, again, it's a really interesting road to go down because there's also this idea of complexity, which which entered in very prominently in the way this is all worked out. And and then it was it featured very prominently in your answer. As I was listening, one of the things that that came into my mind is I think there's also a hierarchy in some of these ideas. And what I mean by that, and this is off book now because I don't have a note attached to this, but you sparked it. So, um, you know, this, I love how you're thinking about empathy. I think that's a really useful way to adjust that definition, because like you said, it is one of those words that has become so popular broadly, not just in business conversations, but in kind of our everyday conversations that in a weird way, everyone has a definition for for it. So it's become undefinable or most definitions are useless, you know, Mm -hmm. because we kind of use the definition that best fits already how we think about things. Mm -hmm. So I want to use your definition in particular for where I'm going with this sort of question. And I promise I'm getting there (laughs) is again, this hierarchy piece comes to mind because I think to myself, when you talk about empathy in the perspective of understanding how a person came to a decision rather than you kind of putting yourself in their shoes. And this is probably a little bit of an American construct right now that I am sitting in New York that I think one of the challenges with some of these ideas is that I would offer that maybe communities, like whether it's people of color or it's women, they've had the advantage of lived experience from the dominant culture's perspective in a Mm -hmm. way, right? So I know the American history that I was taught in a book Mm. that isn't necessarily all that accurate, right? Depending on your perspective. So I could understand why people could come to a certain conclusion if they're reading things that or they've been taught things that don't really support a, a wider perspective. So I'm curious about how we can 
unpack some of those things, right? Like if you've mm-hmm. grown up at a certain time where before Title IX here in the United States, where women caught the vapors and, you know, were, you know, would panic and, oh my God, then, you know, you're going to obviously be framed with that kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. And women are like, hell are you talking about, right? I don't, I don't need a fainting couch. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine, right? Poor examples for being a little facetious, but you get what I'm saying. So th- do, do. You, do you think there's room for that kind of hierarchy and dominance of, of culture in terms of perception and how we evaluate empathy? So I think it's a complicating factor that history and culture have dominantly been written by white men. And so I actually think in some ways that's a disadvantage to white men having empathy. So I've been reading some really interesting things about a silly example, the all-female Ghostbusters movie. I remember Came that. a whole big deal because a bunch of young men did not want to watch women as Ghostbusters because men are Ghostbusters because that is the movie that I saw. Now, for young women, I watched Ghostbusters and I could live vicariously through that experience because that is all that was available to me. You feel my with before Black Panther, if you're going to enjoy a superhero movie, you're going to have to enjoy it through a white lens because those were the superheroes. They were white heroes. And so we are used, I think, those of us who, who are not white men are used to putting ourselves into another person's shoes and finding what is meaningful to us in that experience. And I think that we just haven't had the need for white men dominantly in America to do that because so much of our culture has been geared to them. So much of our culture has catered to that perspective. But we do know that just reading fiction, reading a book of fiction can increase your empathy for a period. So if I do a test, I measure your level of empathy before you read the book of fiction, you read the book of fiction, and then I measure it again, your empathy level will have gone up. And there are lots of Americans who never read a book of fiction after they graduate from high school. And that's another gap for us is how do I read about others' experiences? How do I seek out perspectives that are surprising to me? So how do I, I still vividly remember at the age of 20 reading Zora Neale Hurston for the first time and being like, that is an experience I haven't had access to. That is a perspective that is exciting to me. And maybe builds a little bit of empathy. I'm not, it's not perfect. It's full of gaps, but it brings me closer and makes me more curious. And then I want to learn more and want to learn more in the voices of the people who had that experience. Yeah, I think that's, I 100% agree with that. And I think that that is kind of where that culture piece comes in, that it it provides a sort of a, a natural way to not, 100% understand every lived experience because that would be impossible. But it does provide us with some sort of framework, some sort of thinking that allows us to, I think, trigger that empathy piece, right? To better contextualize other lived experiences, even when we're not going to ever totally be able to capture them, right? And there is a concept around, and this is another piece that I wanted to bring up is this linear thought, because this came up quite a bit 
when I was going through some of the um, work and essays that was written that the integrative thinking process, though it's written in a way that might seem linear, it is not linear. It's not about doing these certain amounts of steps. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that in particular, because that ties so much into how I think about culture. Culture isn't linear. It's Mm -hmm. multidimensional, the way it forms. And it sounded like integrative thinking has some of those same elements to it. I love that frame. I think it's true of integrative thinking. I think it's true of human-centered design. And I think it's true of strategy that we explain these things as if they are linear, linear to make them easier to grasp. These are the steps you need to progress through. These are the things you need to have done in order to come to an answer. But they're iterative. You get to a point, you get a bit stuck and you have to loop back and you learn from things. And maybe you don't think about something for a while and then the idea occurs to you. So there is a version of it where you say, I've got an afternoon and I'm going to go through four steps of integrative thinking and come out with an answer at the end of the day. But it's also a way of being in the world, right? It is also a choice to say, what will I do when I am confronted with an alternative perspective? What will I do when I encounter something I don't understand? Will I take an integrative perspective that says this is a moment to learn? Or will I take the sort of typical standard thing, which is to say, that doesn't fit my model, fall prey to confirmation bias, and then dismiss it as noise. So there is complexity to engaging in the world through this lens, but I think richness as well. And I do think the other thing I want to say, I'm just pondering your response when we were talking about empathy. I don't want to suggest that you can get to true understanding of another person only through reading or observing. The way you get to understanding a person's experience is through engaging with that person, (laughs) seeking their stories, seeking to ask them questions and explore and understand and invite them in to the problem solving that you are engaged in. That is the power of bringing other perspectives is that you don't have to assume what that person wants and needs. You can actually have them there helping you figure that out. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm going to take a little bit of a side because I wanted to talk about strategy, but since you re-brought up that point, I want to, no, I, I seriously, I think it's well worth kind of spending a little time on because it is a very important point. And I think about, you know, since we use like pop culture references, I think the Ghostbusters is, I love pop culture stuff. So this is perfect for me. My head automatically thinks that way. But when I think about certain filmmakers, right, Mm -hmm. that have an opportunity to be, quote unquote, kind of quirky, right? It's kind of like the Paul Andersons of the world and, you know, the whole school of them that can just make these kind of movie Coen brothers that just, Mm -hmm. oh, we're just odd. And we just, you know, it doesn't all make sense. It's all very surreal, right? And other folks don't get to make those movies or don't participate in those type of movies. Mm -hmm. And I always come back to, you know, Chris Rock made a, a joke a few years ago where he was like, I would love to be in one of those movies, right? But they don't really cast people who, who look like me, right? So it's, it's cool to see him like in Fargo right now, right? Exactly. Like he's he's kind of getting that opportunity. And to your point, of course, these things don't, they're no substitute for getting to truly know each other, but they are mm-hmm. useful ways in which to bridge 
gaps, right? I think that's why science fiction is so important, right? It gives Mm -hmm. us imagined possibilities. And all of this is an imagined possibility, right? The Mm -hmm. fact that we're sitting here thousands of miles apart communicating the way in which we are, we're freaking magicians being able to do this, right? Uh Like this is magical stuff. We Mm -hmm. take it for granted, but it truly is on some levels, right? And they are imperfect, but they're useful. You know, they're very, very powerful tools until we can get into shared space. But it helps to get into shared space through many of the things that you've highlighted, right? Mm -hmm. Our popular culture, our popular medium, they change the way in which we view the world. Yeah, and I think that's, I'm a skeptic of social media in general. I worry about what it does to us, but there is something in which it has enabled more artists' voices to be elevated to that we would never have gotten past the gatekeepers. That is pretty exciting. And I, I hold out hope that that will continue to be the case because I think there have always been powerful gatekeepers to art and that tells us what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And I think that breaking that down and, and having a more collective agreement about what, what is and what isn't art is powerful. Yeah, absolutely. It's this sort of opposites that we talked about, right? And and that kind of the opposites integrative thinking, right? Like if you can argue or present one person's case and then also be able to present the other case, right? Like you kind of talk about how that how that process works. And it sounds like we should be able to do this for some of our kind of counterpoints in society, right? That people should be able to sit down and say, okay, I view the world this way, you view the world this way. How do we find the common ground, so to speak, in these two positions? Mm-hmm. I have hope eternally for that, as long as we're able to recognize the power structures behind those conversations. So acknowledging that we are not always coming into the conversation with the same level of privilege and power And so it is the responsibility of the person coming in with the most privilege and power to own that and to step back from that in order to learn. I don't think, again, we've been trained to do that. Yeah. And and I think that's interesting. Like, how do we how do you do that when the people that have the power that have those sorts of abilities don't often think that they do? Right. I think we're seeing a time when the most powerful are actually making the argument that they don't have power. Yeah, they are. That is true. And I think that it's generational change. I'm heartened by the public conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm excited to hear the conversations about social justice and to see progress in simple ways. The changing of a football team's name is progress that I would not have believed was possible a year ago. And the horrible things that had to happen for that to be the case are dispiriting. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it happened is progress and meaningful. I think recognizing that this is generational change. This is not something we are going to be able to change tomorrow. But I think Gen Zs Mm -hmm. uh, are seeing the world differently. And maybe it'll change when they get their first taste of power. But I don't, I have hope that they don't have the same constructs of 
who a successful person is and what they have to look like. The outpouring of love for AOC says that they have models of who their political leaders can be that is different than a, they have to look and sound like Bill Clinton, right? Absolutely. She does not in every wonderful way. Thankful. Uh, And so that is hopeful. I am hopeful about that. No, I I 100% agree. And anybody on the AOC stand trip is good for me. (laughs) You know, I really, you know, I'm on the AOC 2024 camp. (laughs) I love it. Well, so I'm Canadian. And so I'm always amazed when people look at the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and talk about how radical their ideas are when in Canada, they'd be sort of mid political spectrum, like Bernie would not be extreme to us. It's like, yeah, that's basically centrist. That's about, you know, yes, universal health care. Yes, universal basic income. Yeah, that's about how our liberal party thinks. And they're our ruling party right now. So it's always amazing to me as a Canadian to watch the dialogue around the progressive Democrats and be like, but there's, they're nowhere near as far left as, as you might find in yeah. the Canadian political spectrum. And it's amazing how everybody's like a fire-breathing radical. And you're like, no, it's just kind of a normal human. You know, but good luck with that, right? Um, (laughs) I want to pivot to kind of larger strategy stuff because I think this is so important because strategy is one of these things, almost like empathy in a way, right? Like there's a million definitions (laughs) and Mm -hmm. every definition fits a different perspective if you let it. And I love this. One of the strategy books that I love is by Richard Ramel, and he, he writes Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. Mm-hmm. And he makes this point that bad strategy isn't the opposite of good strategy. It's just a different type of strategy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it made me think about this idea of tension that you had, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you work through options that might be less ideal? when you're really centering like a strategic approach, not a stopgap approach, but something that's truly looking to dig into the strategy of an organization? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing we have to understand and acknowledge when we're talking about strategy is that there is no perfect strategy and we can never be certain. Strategy is always about the future. The future hasn't happened yet. So we can have levels of confidence, We can have levels of clarity, but we can never be certain. So we need to recognize that that's an impossibility. Perfection is not attainable. We would never know if it was perfect because the world is so complex and we can't play out all of the other alternatives. But we can do the work to be more confident that our strategy is a good one, that it is likely to answer our strategic problem. So that's the other thing for me is that strategy isn't in a vacuum. Strategy is the answer to a problem. Strategy is a way of solving the problem we face by making clear choices to win in a particular way. So my problem might be that I need a more sustainable customer base. My problem might be that I don't have a competitive advantage. My problem might be that I need to grow. Whatever it is, strategy is an answer to that question. And so the way of determining to what extent a strategy is fit for purpose is by looking back to that question and saying, does it actually do a good job of solving it? And how do I think it does relative to the other possibilities? So when I do strategy, it's not about 
what's the problem and therefore what's the answer. It's what's the problem and what are the possibilities? How might I solve it in different ways? Where might I play? How might I win? What could that look like? And then proceeding through a process that actually lets me hold those against each other and see which which emerges as the possibility I'm most confident betting on at the end. Do you find that organizations that you're working with, clients, you know, however you define those relationships, do you find that they are receptive to a, a process that allows for possibilities being measured against one another? Because sometimes what I found when I take on a project, I'll kind of speak from my own personal experience. And I'm curious if maybe because like, you know, larger organization, you have a different experience <laughs> that um, oftentimes they'll present the challenge. And in the challenge, they'll then say, what should I do? And I'm like, I haven't really started working yet, right? Like, I don't know <laughs> until mm-hmm. we start to go through some of this process. I'm curious if they are, do you find that they're waiting for like the one thing rather than maybe some weighing and pulling apart of possibilities? I mean, they might be, but I'm pretty clear up front that they're not going to get the one thing from me, that we are going to explore possibilities because my belief, my deep-seated belief is that is the way to get to a thoughtful answer. Certainly, I've been in moments where we're working through the process and I can feel them waiting for me to say what the right answer is. So here are the five possibilities. And so Jennifer is now going to tell us which of them is right. (laughs) And every so often I can look at them and say, I can tell you which one I would bet on based on the following information. But that's one perspective. I'll never know your organization as well as you know your organization. So you need to take that perspective with a grain of salt. You need to acknowledge that I can make links across contexts, you can dive deep in your own. And so it's actually where my perspective meets your perspective that we're going to find something interesting. You know, what do you think makes the exploration of those possibilities like truly actionable? I mean, there is an element of trust and transparency. Like that comes up a a lot because at, at least for me, I'm like, well, I can only work with what you give me. And if there are things you just don't want to discuss or you're uncomfortable talking about, then how do I get past that? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm curious if those ideas around trust, transparency, you know, how often do they factor in beyond the kind of academic modeling that goes into doing the actual work? Like sometimes it feels like there's more human things happening even before you get into the, the challenge. Sure. I mean, I believe that in in every conversation, there are at least three conversations. And this is not my construct. Uh, It's just one that I like, which is that when you and I are talking, we're working on anything. There is a content layer, the stuff we're talking about. There is a process layer, the way we're talking about it. And there's a relationship layer, the unspoken stuff going on between you and me. And most of us default universally to the content layer. Even when we know that the reason this conversation is going badly is because of what happened between you and I last week. Or 
even when we know that it's because I am trying to make you follow my process and you have one you like better. Okay. And so for me, sometimes it is that we need to flex our process and our relationship muscles, right? We need to say explicitly, I'm advocating for this process and here's why. How does that sit with you? Are you cool with that? How do you see it differently? Because if you've ever been in one of those meetings where you can't make any progress for an hour because you're fighting seemingly over content, but it's really over the rules of engagement, I would tend to argue that if you'd spent five minutes at the beginning of the meeting talking about the rules of engagement, you might have wound up in a better place on the content. So you do need to be able to move between those layers and acknowledge that there are many organizations where we're not comfortable engaging at the relationship level. And so that's a choice. You have to say either I'm going to make it okay for us to engage at that level by focusing on data, what I've observed, my own experiences, and inviting you to share your perspective on that, or just live with the fact that we don't like each other very much. Yeah. (laughs) I like when there's such a nice, neat synopsis at the end of, eh, we just agree to not not like each other. <laughs> Which we we do all the time, right? There are people in our lives where we're like, never going to like that person. And that's okay. Absolutely. I wouldn't have made it this long if I haven't, haven't made that calculus more than a few times in my life. There, the one piece that you wrote that talks about functions within the organization that really jumped out at me for a couple of reasons. One being that it talked about these ideas, strategy, integrative thinking in a way that was so deeply internal and is very seldom really discussed because you talked about functions like the HR function, the support functions, the things that kind of make up the the tendons, kind of those deep tendons of an organization that often don't get the attention, so to speak. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time going through that because one, some of those spaces tend to be like how I think about like invisibility. They're the things that aren't seen, but yet Mm -hmm. they're very important. And you made a really interesting point about how they compare across organizations Mm -hmm. with one another, right? So uh, you didn't use this example, but like Burger King and McDonald's both make burgers. They're probably thinking about how they compete across food, but they're not thinking about necessarily how their HR functions might like affect mm-hmm. the organization. So I wanted to give some space to talk about that because it, it just seemed like it opened up such a, a broad array of possibilities, even how we de-silo our thinking about how organizations work. Yeah, so this is is an article Roger Martin and I wrote for Harvard Business Review on strategy for functions. And in it, we argue that every function should have a strategy, a set of answers about how they're defining winning, where they're going to play, how they're going to win, the capabilities they need, the systems they need. And they need to understand their role in how the organization wins. So to what extent would the HR folks at McDonald's see themselves as strategically critical versus the HR folks at Shake Shack. I believe the folks in HR at Shake Shack see themselves as strategically critical to the future success of Shake Shack because 
that people are that experience in a very real way. Interestingly, I wonder if we talk to the folks at McDonald's, they might say the same thing. They're just framing the role of talent differently. Absolutely. Right. It's your first job. We're going to teach you some things that will be meaningful in your life. And then we're going to assume that most folks are going to move on. That might be a model in the minds of of the folks at, at McDonald's. And then that becomes a question of, okay, well, we better get really great at recruiting. The aspect of talent that matters most versus developing our talent. And even there with that example, there is a little bit of um, a cultural story, right? That fast food at one point was the quote unquote first job. It was the sort of I'm home from college or I'm going to high school or whatever. And so my first job is sort of quote unquote flipping burgers, right? The McJob economy, so to speak. And and now it seems like we're telling potentially a different story about work altogether, yeah. right? Which could maybe offer a different way for these functions to think about themselves. Yeah, I think as our economy has shifted, so we've seen manufacturing jobs largely leave, which means that the United States, Canada are largely service economies now. They are majority service economies now. And there's a way of framing service jobs as being miserable, low pay, disposable jobs. And many organizations do. And then there's a way of framing those jobs as um, empowered and thoughtful and truly in service of the organization and of customers. And so uh, my friend, uh, Zainab Tan, wrote a great book about this called The Good Job Strategy. If you haven't read it, it's wonderful, in which she highlights a number of low-cost retail organizations who have chosen as part of their strategy not to be good corporate citizens, not because they believe it's morally correct, but as part of their strategy have chosen to create good jobs at the entry level. And so those are organizations like Costco that have said, if we pay you more and empower you, you will be better and the company will earn more money. And Costco is one of the fastest growing retailers in the world right now. And so it seems to be proving out pretty well. Yeah. And it seems like there's room to, you know, sort of reimagine how we think about all of these things to a certain mm-hmm. extent that, and and that this is a little bit more of a holistic question, but sometimes it feels like the willingness or the resources to dedicate to a more strategic, beneficial way in which we've organized any of this, the willpower to do that seems lacking. And I'm clearly sitting in the apex of that. You know, you luckily are not. Right. So my question is probably colored by years of trauma. But relatively, I think we can make a broad assertion that there is that challenge about how are we organizing and thinking about the world we want to have strategically, you know, whether it's here in the United States or more broadly. If one wants to take it further, that these things are connected, we all have to sort of wrestle with these issues no matter where we are. Mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, I, I dumped a lot. So I'm just going to curious about how that sits. Yeah, kind of sits with you, yeah. Sits well. So I think that we're 50 years into the belief that the 
end result of any strategy, the purpose of every organization is to maximize short-run shareholder value. Thank you, Milton Friedman. He told us that's what it's supposed to do. That is dangerous and hurtful and wrong. It means we degrade the environment. It means we treat people as disposable. It means we think of the person who owns our stock for a day and a half as the most important shareholder, stakeholder in our organization, when we should be thinking about our customers, when we should be thinking about our employees, when we should be thinking about our communities. And so for me, it is about acknowledging that that's a model. It has flaws. We have to move beyond it. We have to think about the role of business. If we want business to continue, if we want capitalism to reform to something that is good for everyone rather than the few billionaires that we see, we've got to shift that model. And we've got to start to say, what is a more inclusive capitalism? What is a a way of designing for everyone that says, you know, if you come up with Amazon, you deserve to be well compensated, Jeff Bezos, you should be well compensated. But you probably don't need to have multiple, multiple times more wealth than the vast majority of human beings on the planet because you created a successful organization. You know, before we get to the final two segments of the show, I think that that leaves us in a, in a good place because we kind of wove the culture stuff in the conversation, pop mm-hmm. culture, highbrow, lowbrow, all of that. And, you know, to a certain extent, there is a cultural story when we talk about putting thinking about the other person as to how they can mm-hmm. develop a way of thinking. You know, I try to challenge myself on that and will continue to do it, even though I failed miserably at it. But that culture story is so much a part of why the people like Jeff Bezos and any number of others can do what they do. Clearly, there's institutional things that empower it, but mm-hmm. those institutional things maintain their power, I believe, through stories, right? Through Absolutely. this idea of the gospel of wealth back in the day, the robber barons of old, mm-hmm. it was their, God had shown on them, that's why they were rich, right? As mm-hmm. compared to everybody else. So poverty was a function of your laziness and your lack of natural talents and all the rest of it, right? We've slightly moved away from those stories, slightly moved away from Mm. those stories. And I'm always being kind. Those who know me will be like, come on, Phil, you know you don't believe none of that. Um, But nonetheless, how do we start to integrate a different story that can push an agenda that doesn't make heroes of those who exploit, right? Because we constantly come up with this, this same narrative and I think we have to come up with a different one. Yeah, I agree. I think stories are powerful. I think you need to give yourself a bit of a break when you say you fail at having empathy because your brain is wired to make you fail, right? (laughs) So you've cognitive biases. It makes it super hard for you to to have empathy without an active, you know, sort of active will. So give yourself a little bit of a break on that. I do think it's about finding new stories. I do think it's about creating the space for different perspectives and seeking those out. A friend who introduced me to the concept of multi-homing, in which he said, you know, if you value having local small businesses 
then you can't buy everything on Amazon. You have to go to the local small businesses or they will be gone. You have to multi-home. And sometimes you can order from Amazon and other times you need to go to the bodega. And that's great. That's actually a productive way for us to be in the world. And I think the same can be true of ideas. I think we need to understand the dominant narratives. If we have any hope uh, supplanting them, we need to understand what they are and what drives them and what the key motivators are. And then seek out stories that are in opposition to them, that, that provide alternative data or alternative evidence. And to venerate success in something other than dollars, right? To say that there are ways of measuring powerful success, whether that's Malala or the kids who are working on climate action right now, that you can define success in ways beyond how much money those people have made. And I think the power of the American dream is wonderful, but it does lead us in the direction of venerating those who have succeeded. I mean, it was really that. We need to find another way to measure success other than money. Perfect. And I 100% agree with that assessment because money is imaginary anyway. We created it out of our own imagination so we can definitely create something else. So that is a perfect segue to get to the last two segments of the show. The first one being off the dome. And these are just rapid fire fun questions. I hope fun questions. So I'm going to just rattle them off and you can kind of hit me with the answers. So what is the single best piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? Relax. (laughs) I think we could all learn that one. (laughs) It'll be okay. Stop stressing. You'll figure it out. Perfect. What is the most recent first-time experience that you've had? Oh, what a good question. I want to think about this. Most recent first-time experience that I've had. It's hard because we're not having a lot of first-time experiences right now. Yeah, we're, we're all, all in our living rooms. Yeah, we're all trapped. Um, I tried searing a steak on the top of the stove. I, this sounds so basic, but like trying to get a really great crust on a steak on the cast iron skillet. And I tried that for the first time and it worked really well. And I was wildly excited about the outcome. That's awesome. It might sound like a basic thing, but as someone who cooks, that's not easy to do. I was excited. That's a big challenge. So kudos to that. And kudos to anybody who talks about cast iron. Cast iron is the one of the best, most essential things every person who Mm -hmm. cooks should have in their home. So shout out to all the cast iron people. (laughs) Couldn't agree more. I'm sold. If you could immediately gain one skill, what would it be? Oh, I can't sing at all. I'm the worst singer. It's embarrassing. My husband cringes when I sing in the car. I wish I could sing. I would do that instantly. It's so funny you mentioned singing because it's that kind of leads directly into the final off the dome question. If you can have any theme music or walk-on music, what would it be? Oh, I love the walk-on music question. Oh my goodness, there's so many. But I was listening the other day to Annie Lennox, and I still think that the beginning of Walking on Broken Glass is just, it pumps me up. I think it's great. So maybe not the coolest answer, but she actually is very cool. So I'm going to go with Annie Lennox, Walking on Broken Glass. That is, she's very cool. And she's cool. Your rhythmics is cool. Yeah, that's a great answer. (laughs) 
<laughs> and the minute you say the song, I can hear it in my head. I'm going to have to play it when we get off. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's one of those songs that if you have it in your head and you don't play it immediately, it will never leave. Very possible. <laughs> so you have to have it locked in there. Those are great questions. And so now the drop, the drop is just an intellectual morsel for our listeners. I give one, you give one, or it doesn't have to be just one. The drops can be more than just one. Are you ready? You want me to go first? You go first. Which one do you want to go? I can go first. I had two in mind. Two one drops is great. Brow. So Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, which is a really great way of helping us think about understanding people we may not understand. So I myself am a little more left-wing. I myself am a little more liberal. And so The Righteous Mind is a great way of helping understand people who are more conservative, more on the right wing. And it, it helped me understand a little bit more about how the divides are created in our society. So I think it's a very good and thoughtful book. And then I'm Canadian. And I know this is not going to be like a revelation because it just won 8 million Emmy Awards. But I really love Schitt's Creek. And I have told everyone that I know that they have to like, give it a little time because the first season is just okay. And then it gets amazing. And it's hopeful and inclusive and joyful. And it's Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. So maybe not the most revelatory of suggestions, but I truly love it and recommend it to everybody. Yeah, Schitt's Creek is amazing. So that is a very, very fair recommendation. You can't talk about it enough. I agree with you on everything you said about the show. It is uh, in a time when we can use a lot more joy. It is a very um, joyful show. So I think that's good. And it's lucky that they, you know, I'm not giving it away, but they take a journey that's very worthwhile taking as a, as a viewer. It goes yeah. in a lot of directions you wouldn't expect. So those are great drops. So thank you for those. And I just have one drop, but it's actually one of my favorite records ever made. And it's having, it's celebrating a recent anniversary this week, though when our listeners hear the show, it will have been in the past. But nonetheless, this is a timeless piece of music. I think one of the best pieces of music ever made and it's Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. It is one of his many classics, but I think it's his best cohesive work. It's expansive. It's everything you could want in a piece of music. And so my drop is if you haven't experienced it or you want to go revisit it, Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. Love it. Amazing. This was great. As I promised at the beginning, painless. We made it through. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks. It was really fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. It's been a pleasure having Jennifer Riel join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, Wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.